This morning's scripture reading will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read 1 through 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or of clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide, abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Our focus this morning is going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. However, to properly focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we need to look at it within the context of which the Apostle said it. Uh, the sermon this morning, and I've titled it Love and Miracles because basically that's what the, the chapter is about, was uh, it came about because uh, I was asked to look at chapter 13 and to expose the, uh, the meanings of the statements made by Paul. And so in order for us to do that, we have to look at it within the context. Now, the letter to the Corinthians, like most of the letters written, are divided in sections by topics. So you may have a letter, and a first part of it may describe a particular topic. Uh, the, the following chapters may describe another issue or whatever the case may be. So Paul was addressing a series of shortcomings in Corinth that needed to be adjusted, that needed to be addressed, that needed to be taken care of. And chapter 13 falls into one of those topical categories. Now, it's not a standalone chapter. Chapter 13 falls within the topic that is covered in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no application to just look at chapter 13 and talk about the merits of love and exactly how love is to behave. But often when that is done like that, it's taken out of that particular context and that's okay, there's application there and we can do that. But if we're going to gain all that Paul is left for us to gain and to make all applications or to be able to understand that there is applications beyond just simply the characteristics of love, 
we need to look at the whole context. So, in chapters, uh, uh, let, let's understand what this topic is. In chapters 12 and 13, Paul puts forth four principles that were to be employed to guide one's behavior in the use of spiritual gifts. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 was designed and presented because there was a misuse of the spiritual gifts by many in Corinth. So let's notice these first four principles in chapters 12 and 13. First of all, there were tests by which the Holy Spirit's leading could be discerned. They could discern if someone was truly uh, using a spiritual gift from God. We see that in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, we see the need for a diversity of the spiritual gifts. In all, there were 13 spiritual gifts. Now, each person had one gift. And so there was a need for a diversity of gifts throughout a particular location. When we get to chapter 12, verses 12 through uh, the first part of 31, we see that there is a need for the unity of purpose as the different gifts are used in the church. Now, what does that mean? Someone has the gift of speaking a foreign language they've never studied. Well, someone has the gift of interpreting that foreign language that they had never studied. Those were the miraculous uh, application of tongues that we know uh, we read about in the Bible. Foreign languages. It's much like if we, uh, if we were to speak Spanish and we'd never trained in that language, that would be a miracle. Well, that doesn't happen today. We're going to notice that in the text as well. But there had to be a purpose or a unity of purpose, right? So the purpose of the gifts were to present the gospel message. And so that's the third principle which Paul spoke. Finally, in uh, chapter 12, verse 31, the last part of verse 31, and through chapter 13, Paul tells us that love must be the motive which controls the use of those gifts. Because there was an issue in, in Corinth, right? There were some who wanted the gift of speaking in tongues because everybody knew if a person was speaking a foreign language in which they had never trained. So that was a showy gift. And so a lot of them wanted that gift. And so what was happening was they were demonstrating that gift so they could uh, uh, look more accomplished in the eyes of their brethren. Well, that's not the motive, right? The motive should be you love your brethren and you want to present the gospel. So then we get to chapter 14, and it is the application of the principles to uh, uh, the abuses of spiritual gifts, the four principles that would prevent that. And chapter 14 as a whole speaks to the application of that. So to keep everything in its proper place, Let's begin in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Paul said this, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. The apostle did a masterful job of explaining the importance of the gifts and the proper use of them. A masterful job. And he began by showing that it is the lordship of Christ which is important. Right? That's the main thing, the lordship of Christ. And all 
all spiritual gifts must be brought to that particular touchstone. The basis of every spiritual gift is holding up the idea of Christ's lordship. That's the whole purpose behind it. Now, if their exercise of spiritual gifts were to obstruct in some way that great truth, well then, they were not behaving in such a way that God would condone their behavior. So, there were chief tokens by which any genuine use of spiritual gifts could be known. First of all, a Holy Spirit-led person was not led away. He did not lose control of his actions or his emotions. And you see it in modern day denominations today where people claim to speak these tongues, but it's not a language, right? It, it sounds like a, a, a broken syllables. It is, sounds like a, a gibberish in some sense, but it's never a spoken foreign language, right? That's what the tongues were, Acts chapter 2. And so you'll notice in modern day, quote, tongue speaking, people will get led away. They'll be caught up in what they call the Spirit. Well, look, a true gift from God did not allow the, uh, uh, the Spirit-led person to be led away. That didn't happen. He didn't surrender his, his self-control. Now, the Holy Spirit did not lead, lead men to curse Jesus. That was never going to happen. And the Holy Spirit led men to confess that Jesus was Lord. Now, those are three aspects that a person could identify if someone truly had a miraculous gift from God. Now, after having identified and, and covered the first three principles guiding the use of spiritual gifts, the, uh, the Apostle Paul then turned his attention to uh, the motive behind those gifts. Thus, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The first part of 1 Corinthians 12, 31 instructs this. But covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, I believe chapter 13 ought to start there. Because at that point, he has transitioned over into the motive behind. And then he says in chapter 13, And yet show I unto you a more excellent way, and he began to address this motive. Why is it more excellent? Why is it more excellent? It's, it's more excellent not just simply because love has characteristics that we all should embody. It's more excellent in comparison to the problems that was happening in Corinth. So, as he began to address the motive, he makes a call for love. And he contrasted, and he begins with, the pronunciation of languages Contrasting it with love. Why is love greater? Why is it greater than the gift of speaking a foreign language? Well, I think it's interesting that he took up the gift that the Corinthians prized most. Why is love better? Well, let's start with this gift that's causing you to behave in an unseemly way, and we'll talk about why love is greater. He said, if I were able to speak all the languages which are spoken by men, but I do not do it in the motive or with the motive of love, he said it would be useless. He goes on to say, if I were able to speak the language of angels. Now, I'm not, uh, I don't completely understand exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the, the language of angels, but obviously language is a way of communication, so it must be something different from that of which people speak. So he's talking about 
the gift of being able to speak a foreign language with which you've never studied. He said, if I can do that, yet I don't have love, it's worthless. I could speak the language of angels, yet if I do it from a motive other than love, it would be worthless. And so, he goes on to describe that. He said, it's, it's like a clanging cymbal or someone beating on a, on a gong or something like that. It's just an irritating, frustrating sound. Notice that Paul didn't say, though, that if he was that way, that he was echoing the sound of a cymbal. He said, I've become one. I've become that. That tells us a few things. That implies at least three things to the reader. It implies first that he didn't begin that way. He became that way. It is... uh, to the point where he descended, if that is a person. Of course, Paul is speaking in the, in the first person, but he is using that to describe what would happen if someone were to do this. Paul wasn't that way. I have become implies that I am personally responsible. I chose to do that. And thirdly, the tense of the verb indicates that a past act had a continuing result. In other words, I've continued to behave that way, therefore I have become that way. Like a habit, right? And so that's what the, the apostle is talking about. So in his call for love, he compared the pronunciation of language to why love is greater. And then he goes on to talk about the gift of prophecy in comparison to love. Prophecy or to prophesy, was when an inspired speaker received a message from God and he was led by the Holy Spirit to speak the words directly given into his mind from his vocabulary. Once revelation was received from God, the only avenue to dispense that information was for another person to either speak it or write it. And so this is what uh, prophecy is, or what prophecy was. It was an intelligible speech over a particular topics that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul here has transitioned from the gift that Corinth wanted most to the gift that he prized most, chapter 14. He said prophesying, or prophesying is much greater, much better than uh, speaking in tongues. But at the same time, he said if you prophesy, and the motive of your prophesying is not based in love, it's not going to be as beneficial to anyone as it could be. Certainly not going to be beneficial to the one doing the speaking. We can't uh, want a gift for selfish reasons. And we see examples of that throughout the Bible. When we look in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 24, we see the example of Simon the sorcerer wanting to buy a spiritual gift. Now, he didn't just want one of the 13. He wanted to buy the gift from the apostles that allowed him to give gifts to other people. The apostles were the only men who could impart a gift to someone. And then once that person received the gift, he didn't have the ability to give it to someone else. Only apostles could do that. That is just one reason why we don't have miracles today. Once the apostles died, and everyone who had been given a gift died, the miraculous ended. But at any rate, within the gift of prophecy, Paul spoke of mysteries and knowledge. There's mysteries, 
And when we look at the idea of mysteries, he's talking about uh, something that a person can never know or uncover by himself. When we look in the, the, the biblical context of what a mystery is, the mystery of the gospel, no one could uncover the mystery of the gospel until God delivered that mystery, and he did it through the apostles. And that's why Paul told those in Ephesus, we now understand and know the mystery. So when something is discovered, it no longer remains a mystery. Knowledge was just that. It was information given to people by God, something they couldn't know otherwise. When we look uh, at the life of uh, the king, uh, king Solomon, he talks about the water cycle. Okay, He says that the clouds move from over the ocean over to the mountains. It rains and all rivers run into the ocean. That was not scientific knowledge at the time Solomon wrote that. Only God could have given him that knowledge. When Job and Isaiah talked about the earth being the shape of a circle, no one at that time knew that other than God, and so God gave them that knowledge. But if that knowledge is used or, or that mystery uncovered with, for a reason other than the motive of love, it's not as useful as it could be. And he talks the same thing about faith. He said, you might have faith that could move a mountain. But unless you have love, it's not going to do you any good. And I think he's talking, obviously, about a miraculous faith here. And I think it's the same one the Lord referred to in Mark eleven twenty two. He said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could cause that mountain to go into the sea. And so, but even if you had that kind of ability, that kind of uh, miraculous faith, without love, it doesn't matter. And so we're talking about how great love is in comparison to these other things, but let's remember the whole context. They coveted spiritual gifts above the love of God and the love of man. And so he's saying, you might do these things, but without proper love, they mean nothing. You're wasting your time. And then he goes from the pronunciation and the prophecy to uh, possessions. He said, you might give all that you own to feed the poor. You might even give yourself to be burned for someone else but it does not matter if you do not have love. Now, we need to understand that in the sense of someone giving themselves or doing something for someone to be patted on the back. That's what he's talking about. It, it, would, be, it would be a wasted sacrifice, wouldn't it? That's what makes John 3.16 so great and so important in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave His Son, and the motive was love. And then that way we have the opportunity, and we shouldn't perish because of that gift, but it didn't say we couldn't perish because the gift was given. We have to access the gift, and we have to be obedient. So in his explanation of the proper use of the spiritual gifts, Paul goes from the call for love to the characteristics. Now this is the part where we're most familiar, right? We won't spend as much time on this. But he, he began with the characteristics of love that we are to present to society, to present to others around us. He talks about uh, uh, not having strife, right? Not having different things happening toward one another. And I think it's very uh, interesting that Paul did not at this point try to give a definition of love. He gave a photograph of love, didn't he? He described the picture of love. And he did that so we could take the picture of love, compare it to our love, and make sure that it was the same things. 
Now, there were contentions and strife, right? That's why he begins to give this characteristic of love. But what were the contentions and strife over? Well, when we look in chapters 12, 13, and 14, it was over jealousy of one person having a gift, someone wanting one that was a more showy gift. So they were arguing and fighting amongst themselves. And all those were inconsistent. He talks about being selfish, envious, boastful, prideful, right? Uh, That's inconsistent. He talks about people being ungrateful, being rude, insulting, provocative. Uh, You know, the person who loves is long-suffering, right? They're long-suffering. They're long-tempered. They bear long, even when injurious behavior is involved, right? Someone may become upset because a person is jealous of their particular gift at that time, and they may say things that are hurtful. Well, see, the person who loves is long-tempered, he bears long, and he is patient, right? Love is kind to others. That means good-natured, gentle, tender, affectionate, right? Useful and helpful. Uh, it, it means the opposite of that is harsh. The opposite of that is sulky. The opposite of that is sour or ill-natured. That's not what love is. But we have to look at it in the context of what was going on in Corinth, right? They were fussing and fighting over who had the better and the greater gifts. Neither is love jealous. They were certainly jealous, right? We have to understand there's a difference between envy and jealousy. When we talk about jealousy in this particular context, it wasn't that they wanted also to have the gift of languages. They simply didn't want the other person to have them while they had them. They wanted to be the only one, so to speak, so they could be uh, understood and seen above other people. So we see these characteristics that we uh, uh, should present to society, and then he talks about some characteristics that we should not have within ourselves if we have love, such as boasting or bragging. That's being self-centered, right? That's thinking only of oneself. We might say showing off. Uh, For instance, love does not do its alms in the sight of people so someone can see them, Matthew 6, verse 1. Uh, Bragging, again, reflected this idea of wanting the gift that everybody could see. They could talk about it. True love is not arrogant. Uh, It is is not prideful. It is not self-centered because behind boastfulness and arrogance is a conceit, right? Conceit lives there. And uh, it's an overestimation of one's abilities. It's uh, uh, looking at oneself greater than what we ought to look at ourselves, right? And uh, it says love is not ill-behaved, not ill-mannered, it's not crude, it's not discourteous, it's not indecent, it is not repulsive, it is not self-assertive. The word means to behave shamefully or disgracefully. And love does not do that. Love does not seek its own. That means it doesn't seek to take advantage or gain an advantage over someone else. It is not easily provoked. It's not going to fly into a rage and be illogical and and, and, uh, uh, not listening or trying to understand, right? A person who loves may be injured by another, but he will govern his passions and he will still behave as God wants him to behave. Here's one that says love does not think evil. Now there's a couple things we need to look at this. One way is it does not keep track of evil things, right? It doesn't keep track 
we don't have a scorecard, so to speak, of someone mistreating me or whatever the case may be, right? Brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so said this to me. They hurt my feelings. I'm going to mark it down and I'm going to put the date next to it. I knew a brother one time years ago that would take the, the, uh, the church directory and he would write next to the picture, spoke to me on such such date. So he could keep up with it. And that way he could say, well, you had not spoken to me in two months. Well, see, love does not think evil. Also, love will put the best possible construction of motive and conduct on others. Meaning, love is not disposed to apply motive. Evil intention, right? Love doesn't do that. So, in the context of what we're talking about, those in Corinth, they wanted to have particular gifts and... Someone would say, well, he just wants a gift because of whatever. Or he's misusing that gift. And that may not be the case at all because they don't know the heart of that individual. Love certainly never rejoices in unrighteousness. We're not happy when someone falls into sin. That ought to hurt us, right? It ought to hurt us not only for those involved, but it ought to hurt us because it hurts God. But at the other time, in contrast, it rejoices in the truth, I believe the better uh, translation here is it rejoices with truth. What was the purpose of the gifts? The truth of the purpose was to spread the gospel. Let's rejoice in that the gospel was spread no matter who was speaking, no matter who was prophesying, no matter who was interpreting. Let's rejoice with the truth. Instead, they were jealous, they were hateful, they were unloving even though the message was being presented. Love bears all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things. It endures all things. Love is disposed to cover up imperfections. Okay? Now, what does that mean? That doesn't intend that we ignore sin, but what we do is all of us who are walking in the light have certain imperfections that we're continually working on. And we don't call our neighbor, and we don't tell that person of the imperfections of someone else. We're not gossiping about someone. We want people to think the best of us and those around us. One is not going to participate in that. Now, believe all things does not mean that we're credulous, right? We do not believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. The Christian is not to believe that white is black or that black is white or red is whatever color. We're not to do that. That's that's called uh, uh, being gullible, right? That's not what he's talking about here. It means that we're in not a hurry to impute false motive. That's what he talks about. Love withholds judgment until the evidence is in. Paul warned Timothy, 1 Timothy uh, 6, beginning with verse 3. He said, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. Evil surmisings is evil suspicion, right? We're not going to place evil suspicion on someone. Now the last three characteristics, believes, hopes, and endures, they form a climax. When love has, uh, uh, does not have evidence, 
to the contrary, it believes the best. That's what love does. When evidence is adverse to what we would like, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. Right? Isn't that a great description of a Christian? Unless otherwise proven, we think the best. We hope the best. When we are proven that it is adverse, we hope for the best. When we're continually disappointed, we still hope for the best and we endure because that's what we want. The one who loves still hopes what is good for another, even when others cease to do that. So in explaining the connection between the miraculous gifts of the first century and love, Paul made a call for love. Then he talked about the characteristics of love and why they were so much more important than having a simple spiritual gift. And then he brings us to the conclusion. What's the conclusion? Love is permanent. Love is permanent. It's not going anywhere, right? Let's remember in the context. What was the problem? What was the basis of the problem? Jealousy over spiritual gifts. But what wasn't permanent? The spiritual gifts, right? Love was permanent. Now that doesn't mean that chapter 13 cannot be used to describe the behavior of love in a whole lot of instances. There is application. But within this context, it is for the purpose of talking about the motivation behind the spiritual gift because a spiritual gift is going to end. We'll notice that. Because of that, Paul reminded love never fails. Spiritual gifts are going to fail. The ones that they put so much value in, the ones that they wanted so dearly, that was going away. So you're focusing on the wrong thing, right? The temporary nature of the miraculous is what chapter 13 is all about. It's not really about love. Oh, we can make application. Here's a great description of it. But it is about the temporary nature of the miraculous and that love is greater. Now again, that doesn't, doesn't indicate that we can't make application. Paul then explained the purpose of the gifts and the reason behind them. Now notice he said we, we prophesy in part, we know in part. Now what that doesn't mean is that as the message was given by the inspired speaker, that in some way it was given imperfectly. That's not at all what it means. What it does mean is that those who had the gifts, he had one gift, right? He might have had the gift of prophecy. He didn't have the gift of knowledge. He didn't have the gift of speaking in tongues. So he only had part of the miraculous, right? That's why it took an abundance of people who had those gifts. So they were only able to impart a portion of God's message. And so again, that's why... You had to have a diversity of people who had these gifts. The gifts themselves, they represented imperfection because it says that something perfect was coming. So we have to understand what that perfect thing is, right? Those who had the gifts had to depend on someone else, right? If you had the gift of speaking a foreign language, didn't do you a bit of good unless you had someone that could interpret. Okay? You had to have someone who had prophecy. You had to have someone who had knowledge. You had to have someone who could heal the sick or do whatever the case may be. So they had to depend on other people, but something perfect was coming 
that prevented them from having to, de- to depend on another person. Do you know why the Bible is such a perfect gift from God? Because one person can open the Bible, can read the contents of it, and they can know what God wants for them without having to ask anyone else. That wasn't the case during the miraculous. That which is perfect. Notice that he didn't, see, he didn't say he who was perfect was coming. He said that which is perfect. And he's talking about the completed word of God. Perfect is, is better translated, in fact, complete, because the word teleos means complete. So he's talking about that which is complete, and that is the word of God. Now, the conclusion is love is permanent. The result of love is that it performs. Okay, you see something. He used the illustration of a glass. He said, we look into a glass. Now, mirrors in that day were called glasses. And in fact, they didn't do a very good job for what they were created. You could look in it, and you, and you just couldn't see very well. Have you ever been into a, a restroom where it had the metal mirror up there, and it looked like you were in the fun house? You know, you weren't going to be able to correct your makeup very well in that or anything else. It just does not do well what it's designed to do. And the glasses at that time did not do a particularly good job. So the miraculous delivered God's message, but it took a whole lot of people to be able to do that. Okay, When the completed Word of God came, it takes one person to look into the Bible and understand what God wants, and they can teach another person, and that person can teach another person, and they can do it all on their own. That is the greatness of that which is perfect. See, now we all have the opportunity and the privilege to deliver that message. And it doesn't have a thing in the world to do about having a greater ability. It has everything to do with having love for the world and love for God to want to deliver that message. So since these gifts were temporary, Paul reminded those in Corinth, he said, faith, hope, and love would abide. But the greatest of those three is love. Faith, hope, and love will exist until the end of time. But faith will be lost in heaven. Hope will be lost when heaven uh, is fulfilled. But love will continue into heaven, into eternity, and will probably be even greater than it is now. So in view of the fact that miracles were necessary to reveal and to confirm the Word of God, and all that was done. Miracles to that end have ceased. There are no more miracles. So when Paul talks about prophesying, he talks about speaking in tongues, he's talking about what was happening at that time, the purpose for it happening at that time, but let's not lose the context. They were going to be lost because they were jealous, they were ungodly, they didn't act like faithful Christians, because they did not love. It's all about love in comparison to those miracles that would end. Love will never end. Love's never going to cease. And the Corinthians needed to understand their abilities would only benefit those if the motive behind it was love. If it was simply to be seen of others, it wasn't going to work wasn't going to work. And the same is true today. If we use our abilities in this life for selfish reasons, we're not going to benefit 
those around us. We're certainly not going to benefit ourselves. We're not fully using what God has given to us. And He wants us to do that. So our motive must be love. If we're able to do something in the army of God, as a member of His church, we have to do it as a motive of love. And that's how we become members in the first place, isn't it? We talked about John 3.16. God gave Christ, His only begotten Son, out of love that whosoever believes on Him should not perish. So we have to understand what that word believe means. How do we believe on Him? Well, we abide by His commandments, right? If someone tells us something and we believe it, well, then we'll do it. Christ said that we had to listen to His words. He said His words will live forever. This this world's going to pass away, He said, but my word will continue forever. We have to believe that word, John 8, 24. We have to repent of past sins after having studied the word and understood that there's something greater. God expects something more. Acts 17, verse 30, he, he demands all men everywhere to repent. That means we have to repent, everybody, for whatever reason, right? We have to confess that He is the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. That leads us unto salvation. Immersion in water, being buried again in baptism, Romans 6, 3 and 4, to come up to walk in a new life, having our sins washed away, and now we're a new creature, and we continue to be faithful always loving to the end. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. Put Christ on in baptism. If you have, you've been unfaithful for whatever reason. Repent of those things. And if it's necessary to do it publicly, do it publicly. If not, do it privately and God will forgive you. If you have need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.